What does healing mean to you? I think our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. And so that is at the forefront of my heart and my mind all the time. Voices, the mental health podcast, raising unanswered questions, sharing unanswered prayers. We are faith-based, peer-led, story-driven, and stigma-breaking. I am Tony Roberts. I am Eric Riddle. And we are Revealing Voices. Tony, it's episode 27. It's been a good summer. How have you been doing? Well, this summer's been quite a a spiritual, arduous journey for me. I have uh, accomplished, or I should say, been blessed with a number of things. My wife and I bought a home, and that was quite an undertaking. Uh, In the midst of it, I, I was in a deep depression. Fortunately, the the Literally the day before I got to meet her oldest daughter, Katie, I I came out of that. And as can happen when you have bipolar, I went to the opposite extreme, and the light that streamed in blinded me. Mm. So I spent about 10 days in this mental frenetic energy that was spewed all over the place. Um, interesting moment happened when I was sitting down watching Sister Act. Yeah. It's a silly little story. The Whoopi uh, Goldberg the film? The Whoopi Goldberg. Silly little story about transformation and has some spiritual themes, but they're very uh, lighthearted. Sure. Uh, I bawled, and I continued to bawl for the next three hours. Wow. Um, it was exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I described uh, is that I became overwhelmed by the fiery grace of God. No, I don't deserve God's grace, but it's there. And if I deny it, then it's like I'm denying a part of God's image in me. So that was quite a revelation. And since that time, I've been on a real level ground, as Psalm 26 says, you know, on level ground in the great congregation, I've been drawing on the disciplines of walking each morning, uh, spending time with my dog, Briley, and spending time in the Word of Scripture. Tony lives a few blocks from me now. That's right. I've seen you twice now. That's right. There's a park just within a couple blocks of us, and so he's he's walking Eric doesn't wake up early enough to walk with no, us in the park. Yeah, it's uh it's a great sleep, Tony. It's a it's a great neighborhood. I will say, you know, Tony, you speak of lot, lots of ups and downs and I I've known you for quite a while and you've always come across as fairly in control of your emotions. I, I think sometimes you're probably in more private settings when you're really struggling like that. But just to let you know, I, I think you really carry yourself very well regardless of wh- where you're at. Thank you. Yeah. That, that means a lot. There have been moments that I've publicly uh, lost control emotionally, mm-hmm. um, but um, God has has given me the strength most of the time to 
present my story mm -hmm. without uh, being a blubbering idiot. I sure. I told I spoke with the Rotary Club. Eric was there, and I was like, you know, if I would have given this speech three days ago, I would have been a blubbering idiot, and two mm -hmm. days ago, I would have been turning cartwheels but yeah you know, it just so happened that was a really that, good presentation to rotary I, I was thank really you. happy to be there well thanks to keith weedman and all of the good folks at the rotary and um i i appreciate the invite so eric you, you talked about the podcast i did i put a plug we might in. have a few listeners from rotary right now yeah i put a plug in for the podcast so eric you, you've made some some travels some family travels this yep, summer. yep. So uh, I was born in Detroit. I lived there for 18 months and uh, remember been, it well. <laughs> right, been in Kentucky and Indiana uh, for the last uh, 38 years. Uh, Jen, my wife, was born in Erie County in the outskirts of Buffalo, New York. And so what we did is we went to Detroit for two nights, went to Cedar Point on the way to Buffalo. Then we were in Buffalo for three nights, went to Niagara Falls. Um, a great time. We were with uh, the kids. You know, they're 13 and 16 now. And, you know, we thought they're at an age where they can appreciate it. You know, we, we visited both the house where I was born as well as the house where, where Jen grew up. Just to have some of that family history, you know, and kind of see see some of their roots, I, I think that's really important. Went to the Mecca of Wegmans? We went to Wegmans. I sent Tony a picture. We bought some Loganberry mix. Yep. A couple bottles. That, that's a famous soft drink, non-carbonated, uh, from the Buffalo area. Mm. Uh did did it all, man. Mm -hmm. Buffalo is like food world, and mm -hmm. had buffalo wings in Buffalo. The real stuff. Some really good New York style pizza. Mm -hmm. Had a. Uh, did you fold it over lengthwise? I didn't go all the way. Okay. I could have, but uh -huh. I didn't. Uh, had a beef on weck. Very good sandwich. I don't think I've had that. That's a buffalo yeah. thing. It's. Basically like a roast beef sandwich with a really nice bun that has fennel, I think, and uh, like a sea salt, mm -hmm. uh, buttery. It was really nice. Mm. A lot of ice cream. There's a place called Antoinette's, which Jen has talked about, like our entire relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, this family ice cream and chocolate shop, candy shop. Mm -hmm. We went there. Uh, my daughter works at the famous ice cream mm -hmm. shop here in Columbus called Zaharico's, mm -hmm. and so Neela was really keen on trying this. Mm -hmm. And she had uh, the cookies and cream ice cream with peanut butter sauce, and she's like, it's pretty good, but I don't know. I think Zaharico's is right up there with Antoinette's. Zaharico's is great. I went there with my wife, Susan, and we took her daughter, Katie, and uh, grandchildren, uh, KP3 and Lizzie. Right. Um, and they were impressed, except when the Wurlitzer came on <laughs> and, and KP3 was like covering his ears. It's in the heart of downtown Columbus. They've got this incredible bar there mm, where the soda jerks. Ice cream. Jerks, ice cream. It's a soda and ice cream bar. Yeah. yeah. No alcohol. Very, no. just a perfect family restaurant. Whenever you're visiting Columbus, you got to go. And you also have been doing some very spiritual reading. Yeah, I, I do want to touch very briefly. In Detroit and Buffalo, there are very large parks designed by Frederick Olmsted, who is also uh, most famous for 
uh, Central Park in New York, as well as Prospect Park in Brooklyn. He also did uh, the Emerald Necklace in Boston, just work all over the country. And I, I found this biography. Uh, it was just incredible. The historian was taking from a lot of letters. He was just a, a man of letters kind of guy, well beyond just his landscape architecture practice. Um, little known fact, his first landscape architecture job was actually Central Park. That blew my mind. The other was that he was the first journalist working for the New York Times that went to the South during pre-Civil War slavery to report on the economy of the South. Wow. He, he published a couple of books from those, mm. those newspaper articles he wrote. Really just a devoted man. It was a very good read. I bet. Yeah. So how is this fueling your own vocation? Well, you know, I just continue to lean in to loving plants. You know, I, I've, I've started listening to a lot of podcasts that are focused on plants, focused on environmentalism, could be green business, anything green, pretty much. I, I'm feeling more and more drawn to just very important work. My kids think I'm becoming like some weird plant crunchy guy or something. <laughs> Tree <but> hugger. <laughs> like, you know, uh, there's a climate crisis happening and it's mm-hmm. going to affect a lot of people and, and their generation will be impacted. Well, um, our guest, Deborah Giesling. So I became aware of Deborah Giesling when I wrote to DJ Jaffe, who is the director of mentalillnesspolicy.org, of really a guru in um, advocating for the rights of persons uh, who love and who care for uh, those with mental illness, especially the severe yeah. mental illness. So DJ gave me the name of uh, Deborah Giesling as someone who is uh, developing a uh, project from a distinctly Christian point of view. Right. Eric, you want to talk a little bit about that? So Deborah has a ministry called P82 Project Restoration. Uh, P82 refers to Psalm 82 and their kind of core verse is give justice to the weak and fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. And it's a work in progress. The vision for P82 is to create a um, Christian-based assisted outpatient treatment program for those with uh, serious mental illness. That home is not a reality yet, but in the meantime, she is just doing incredible amounts of advocacy collaboration uh, within her community in Arizona, as well as work on policy uh, with the federal government. So uh, this this vision she has cast for this home has really put her on a path to make all kinds of ministry opportunities within the church, as well as uh, policy advocacy and just networking. You know, it, it starts with a building a network, I think, before you can do anything really ambitious. Yeah, there are a lot of hoops to jump through. I mean, uh, politically, and uh, since she's tying in faith, she's got to yeah. uh, connect with churches. Like you said, she's a collaborator, and she said, I have to be. That's and right. This is, in this business, it's not a matter of just turning over a check and building a building. It's That's much right. more. That's right. Thank you, Deborah. 
Okay, we have with us today Deborah Giesling on our program. I found out about Deborah through her work in the mental health field. Her son Seth, that we're going to be talking about, has experienced some mental health challenges in his life, and this has led Deborah to uh, uh, a mission that will, by the Lord's leading, serve people who have serious mental illness in providing them homes that have appropriate care, um, but also elements of safety. And she'll be talking more about that as, as well as her, her personal life that's and, and faith that has led her to this point. So, Deborah, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start off with a, a few questions about faith and mental illness. What did lead you to your current faith testimony? Uh, well, currently, I've been a Christian since I was 18 years old, and I currently go to a non-denominational church here in Gilbert, Arizona. But I grew up in a home that was, we were Catholic, and my parents, we were the, you know, stereotypical Catholics that went to church on Easter and, and Christmas, and um, I had a really good family, and I thought, I thought, Based on that, and I was born Catholic, that I was a good girl and I was going to heaven. And just mm -hmm. before I turned 18, God started to um, kind of mess with that illusion, the delusion that I had, because um, I had kind of a list in my mind of what the list of things I wasn't going to, to do, all the bad things. Mm. And one by one, I started crossing off that list and started realizing um, I'm not such a good person. I'm not such a good girl that I thought I was. And mm -hmm. it wasn't shortly, you know, after that time I heard the gospel and I responded to that and, and, you know, realized I needed a savior. And so that's been my life, uh, just pursuing Christ and following him because of what he's done for me at the cross. Wonderful. And then along the way, you um, you got married. Do you have just one child, Seth? Or no, I have four four boys. Four boys. Wow, good for you. Yep, and three grandsons. It's all boys in this family. Okay, that's the only wow. that's the only recipe we have. As you expressed your faith within a faith community and became a a mother, um, how did you find that to be a supportive? place for parenting? And then how was it more challenging to parent for you? I think coming out of the background that I had and then um, trying to figure out in the beginning, oh, I'm supposed to go to church. I didn't even know. I didn't even know anything about the Bible, didn't know anything about church. And so I was a very young mom. I had my children. We got married early. My husband and I, I was uh, shortly after I came to Christ that I got married. And we were just, we were floundering. We didn't know what we were doing. We really didn't. And so uh, we visited different churches. And I was still kind of grappling with that whole earning my salvation versus yeah. Christ. Mm -hmm. Christ. It's, it's, it's because of His grace. And so that affected my parenting. It really did, especially in the, mm -hmm. in the beginning years. And you know, mm -hmm. I, I would say I was, um, let's say we were pretty legalistic 
in the beginning uh, mm-hmm. of our parenting years. And then it really was interesting because our, our son, our third son, who I'm going to talk about, he really was, God had really used him and, and the trial we were mm-hmm. gonna, about to walk through to really change us mm-hmm. and change me and to un- have a better understanding of the gospel. And mm. as I became an advocate for my son, I started really understanding what an advocate meant and what Christ, the ultimate advocate, mm. was. And so that's just been a catalyst for huge change in us. That's a really good subject to explore. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit as an advocate uh, is something that can be a little bit uh, abstract, but, but it sounds like for you that's been very meaningful. Mm. It really has, because my son, his his serious mental illness has affected him to the degree where he he cannot advocate for himself. He absolutely mm-hmm. cannot. And and in many ways, he doesn't even really understand the need and doesn't even understand what I do. Not that we expect him to or expect him to thank mm-hmm. us. That has just shown me the love that I have for my son and the love that the passion and the fierceness that I have for him to want to protect him and want to want to help him grow and help him get better, or, you know, whatever, bring quality mm-hmm. of life to him. Um, to me, that's a reflection of how God feels about me and all of us. You said when he was young, he really helped you understand your walk with Christ in, in a greater way. I, I think I heard you saying that before. Um, what I meant to say was that as his mental illness developed and as it, as we started going through crisis as a family, well, first of all, it was like a nuclear bomb went off in our family. And Mm. looking at it from the outside, it would seem like there's no hope here. This is just a a very difficult situation. Why is God allowing this to happen? But I know people throw around Romans 8, 28 a lot, and God works everything for the good of those who love him. But really, I believe that's what God was doing. And I I mean, I couldn't have perceived it at the time. Mm -hmm. But looking back, that those trials and they started with my son around the age of 14, they really forced me to have to rely on God in a way that I had never had done before. And it forced me to, you know, I had a lot of questions for God uh, about this, about this trial. And it forced me to really flesh that out with him in a way that I hadn't before. So you described this period as like a nuclear bomb going off. And what did that look like for you guys, uh, you know, in, in a tangible way? How would you how would you portray that for our listeners who who may never have have seen that or, or those who who may well know exactly what you're talking about? Around the age of 14, he started uh, doing things at first. We you know, our first response was, well, he's being a rebellious teenager. This was our third son, mm-hmm. and we'd seen that before. I was a rebellious teenager. My husband was. But our son, it started becoming really extreme, and it, it just didn't quite fit. It wasn't your normal rebellious teenager, he, teenage experience. He, he started running away, and mm-hmm. he started doing things like taking Benadryl, overdosing on Benadryl. And it just was a, mm-hmm. it was a continuous thing. It was very perplexing to us because we didn't really 
there was nothing we could tie it to to say this is you know why he's rebelling and that you know and he wasn't responding to counseling he wasn't responding to any sort of discipline you know that right. or any parenting we were taking parenting classes and we ourselves were seeking out help and and he wasn't responding to any of that and so we had to make the difficult decision at one point to get some outside help and we had to kind of look for a placement outside of our home to remove him from all the temptations and we had mm. we sent him to a christian ranch in montana which is not something any parent has on their radar for the dreams of their child you know we've got to do this right. and it was gut-wrenching it was absolutely mm. gut-wrenching and yes and then you can imagine how that's affecting his brothers you know his older brothers mm you know, questioning why, why is mom and dad doing this? And then we've got a younger mm-hmm. son at home uh, that we need, mm-hmm. that we need to kind of, we're still raising him and in, in some ways protecting him from, from yeah. what's happening. That kind of started, you know, we thought at that time, well, this is probably the worst thing we're ever going to walk through, but that, that wasn't true. <laughs> what age was he when he went to Montana? He was 14 mm-hmm. and he just went there. He went there for just a few months. It wasn't a long-term place. Uh, in fact, he looks back on it now and he talks about that as a very good memory. It was a very fun yeah. time. He, he got to go river rafting. He went to Yellowstone. You know, he did a lot of, he had a lot of good experiences there, uh, thankfully. And, you know, we were also seeking input from the counselors that were at the ranch. And, you know, is it, are you, what are you observing? <laughs> what are you learning from yeah. our son? And their only, you know, input to us was, well, he's kind of moody. <laughs> and, and so that stuck in me though, you know, it's kind of moody. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, two things that strike me in that, Deborah, you know, Ed, that really reveal two things that are very current in what you are doing and what I hear people like DJ Jaffe and Laura Pagliano and many people, uh, the first is, uh, you know, how the approach is so terribly narrow that it's behavioral, you know, it's, it's gotta be moody, moodiness rather than a disease. Then the second thing is that the parents aren't let into anything. It's like the parents are part of the problem. And that was just the beginning. <laughs> because, you know, after after he came home, he did well for a little while, but then the behavior started up again. And they were getting even more extreme. And we were having to involve the police at, at times. And they still didn't understand what we were dealing with, but we were starting to suspect, and, and we were getting input from other people who knew us. We, we involved our friends, we involved our pastors who knew us, they'd known our family uh, ever since Seth was a baby, and we wanted other people's input because we, we were in the middle of a crisis and we weren't trusting that we were seeing everything clearly. And, you know, people, my pastor's wife started asking, do you, do you think that there's something that it's physiological going on here. And I was already starting mm-hmm. to suspect that. But there was no way that our son at that time in that state was going to agree to go to a psychiatrist with us. There, yeah. there was just no way. And right. uh, we actually at one point had to trick him 
and and we took him to an adolescent psychiatric hospital and we had to say we're going to just go for an appointment and once they got him there they said you know we think he needs to be inpatient and so we had to have him stay there which was another Mm -hmm. very difficult thing to do if Mm -hmm. if you've seen the inside of some of these facilities it's not it's not heartwarming and it's not like going to the hospital for a broken leg. It's a totally different situation. And, right. yes. and it was a similar thing. He was just there for a week and then we went to pick him up and they said, well, we think he might be bipolar. Here's a list of counselors. Good luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and again, uh, our son, you know, we left and he was just angry with us. We still didn't really have any answers, and we were still in this crisis mode with his behavior started escalating, and then, you know, now he's, by this point, he's very angry at us and blaming us. So one night, we had to involve the police again, and we actually pressed for him to be arrested, And Mm -hmm. and we really had to press, and that, and I don't say that lightly, like, gee, that what a great thing we got to have our son arrested. But we knew he needed to be somewhere safe. And he right. he was doing things that were against the law. He was causing harm to a family member. And we had to have him put in a juvenile um, jail. And But it was during that time that we had providentially had already set up a psychiatric appointment with a, with a um a doctor that we had gotten a referral to, but we had to wait three to four months for that appointment. Yeah, in that nuts. Oh, <laughs> it, oh. it was it was insane, and so we. It, but I was when I made the appointment, I was terrified because I thought, how are we going to get? How are we going to talk him into going now to a doctor appointment? And but because he was in jail, they were able to transport him. It was actually. A blessing in disguise. They were able to transport him to his doctor appointment. And once that psychiatrist met our son, heard our history, uh, he took, you know, he listened to us, got extensive history on our son. He, he looked at us and he said, your son is bipolar. He needs to be on medication. Yes. And it, that, I'll never forget leaving that appointment. It was like the weight of the world just lifted off of our shoulders we thought okay we have we have information now we have an, something to work with here how did your son react to that you know he was very agitated and think about it, he was brought into this appointment wearing jail clothes and in mm. and in handcuffs yeah. so he was really angry at us and um didn't really agree with the doctors what the, with what the doctor was saying after that we just had to um he was still in jail for a while and then we all agreed he got a probation officer and we all agreed he should step down to kind of a transitional youth facility so that they can monitor his medications make sure he's taking his meds and then transition back to home and so that that worked for a little while and he came back home and he was doing good on his medication but then he came home and stopped taking his medication and refused. And so this, mm-hmm. this whole nightmare started again and mm-hmm. until he turned 18. And that's when he had his first really serious psychotic break.
You know, Deborah, I want to touch back on earlier in the conversation and ask you, how has this uh, illness of Seth's impacted your, your own faith and your own walk with Christ? During all this time, I was really struggling. I didn't really know I was struggling. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but suddenly there was this kind of anger brewing in me. And I would, you know, as I would pray and ask God to help us, it seemed like it would just continue to get worse. And the trial would escalate and the crisis would escalate and the situation would escalate. And then the on-ramps to help were, were nowhere in sight. There was no clear path. And I didn't know anyone who had gone through this. So I couldn't pick up the phone and call a friend and say, what did you do, you know, when you were, when you were experiencing this? Because I didn't. Yeah. No one. And over time, this bubbling anger was building in me towards God. And I, I say that now, I'm ashamed of that, but but I, it was there. God knew my heart and he still loves me. And, but what, what, hap- yep. what happened through that was I, I was angry also because not only was the trial so bad, but I sensed this, this clear, stark silence from God. I, I didn't, mm. didn't sense his presence at all. I didn't see Anywhere with my eyes, where where are you working, God? Because everything just seems to be falling apart, and every year it's getting worse. But I came to this point where I just poured all that out. I just poured honestly out to God what I was feeling and how I was feeling towards Him, and why aren't you answering me? Why is this happening? And there was just kind of a breaking point for me, and I started realizing uh, one, of, one of the verses, it's in Psalms, it says, um, I think it's 46, you know, God is an ever-present help in time of trouble. Yep. That, ver- yep. that verse was my sticking, because <laughs> yeah. I would say, God, you said you were ever-present help, and I don't feel you. I don't see you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you said you, you say that. And, and I was reading that one time, and I realized, God didn't say I was going to feel him. God didn't say that things were going to be great. He said he is a help in trouble. And I realized that I had to take him at his word and that I had to trust him by faith. And I had to start, mm-hmm. uh, it just gave, it birthed in me this hunger for reading his word more and just having to trust him and hang on to his promises no matter what I was seeing. And no matter how bad our storm was, God was who he, who he says he is or he's not. And that started, I didn't realize how kind of wishy-washy my faith was before this. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I was trusting in my feelings, trusting in my circumstances. But God really forced me to just throw myself on him and look to the cross and the gospel over and over. Because nowhere does God show his love or express his love more profoundly than that. I look back on now and I'm, I'm not grateful that my son has a mental illness, but I am grateful that God, that's where God was working in me. It sounds like, you know, this is a profound suffering that you were having to endure during this time. And going back to advocacy, it sounds like you were really in that time refining your own call into ministry and, and it sounds like you were doing so with a lot of grace, especially considering the circumstances around his health. 
we talk a lot about the intersection of the faith community and the mental illness world. Um, how has the faith community that you've been involved in uh, reacted and uh, responded to Seth? That's a great question. First of all, I want to say I love my church. We, we've been going there, like I said, ever since we lived here for 26 years. Awesome. But in the beginning, yeah. When, yeah, the natural thing that we do as parents, sadly, is, you know, we don't want our kids to hang around that kid that's getting in trouble and is being rebellious and we don't want, we don't want their influence. And so there, there was this pulling away during that time as Seth got his illness progressed and, and we just felt very isolated. Now, and our pastors were very much involved with us and tracking with us, and we had a couple of close friends, but there was a tangible, I describe it as a tsunami, right before the tsunami comes, the, the water pulls away. That's what it felt like, people pulling away mm. from you. You're standing there exposed. That's how it felt to us. Not that it, and I just believe that's because people didn't understand what was going on. They didn't know how to, how to reach out to us. Uh, I would have been one of those people. You know, I had my own ideas about what I thought schizophrenia was. And we were really tempted, my husband and I, to pull away ourselves and completely isolate. We even thought at one point, let's just let's just leave this church, you know. This is too hard. Yeah. And then my husband said, no, this, this is our church. He said, we're going to have to learn how to do church with Seth. People are going to have mm-hmm. to learn. And we, yes. you know, in the beginning when he, after his first, couple of hospitalizations, he was pretty symptomatic. It was very obvious that he wasn't doing well, but he would still want to come to church. And uh, people people were afraid. But we decided that we would, you know, there was questions or there's things said that weren't helpful, but we decided that we were going to be patient with people and help them to understand. And now our church just loves Seth. They love him, and he loves going to church. I mean, he has friends that take him out to coffee every yeah. other week. I mean, if you ask him what his favorite day of the week is, he will say Sunday. And he yeah. he's not going because we make him go. Um, that's his choice. But yeah. Praise that's God. Great. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, good job, Mom. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Good job, God. Uh, yeah, exactly. And my husband. My husband. <laughs> And your husband. He's a good guy. (laughs) So tell us more about P82 Homes. We founded it about four years ago now out of a heart to open up a home one day, uh, but also a heart to advocate. And when we first got into the system, we saw how difficult it was for a mom who was able to advocate full time for someone so sick. Mm -hmm. We saw how hard that was. We realized, oh, my gosh. What is happening to everybody else? You know, if it's this hard for us and we're on deck all the time, I can't imagine. It was just became so clear to us the holes and the gaps for this population that can't speak up for themselves. It was also very obvious that the sickest were just kind of getting pushed out and they, they're getting spit out because they, they don't look good on your outcome sheets and mm-hmm. they don't check all the boxes. And at one point, our son, when we finally had to make the decision that he couldn't live with us anymore, we placed him in a, we found a home that was close to us. And the state moved to have him ejected after three months because he wasn't doing his chores. Wow. Our son had just come off of two years of 
recycling in and out of the hospital, in and out of the hospital, quick releases, medication changes. And he lost so much cognition at that point. And then for them to say, well, we think he needs a higher level of care. This isn't appropriate. Well, where is that higher level of care? There wasn't a higher level of care. So my husband and I dug in our heels. We had to go to the media. We said, no, you're not kicking him out. He's, he needs a longer period of time in this housing situation to recover. And so he was able to live there in this in his home for several years. They cooked his meals for him. There was 24-hour staff there, and we were very involved. But he, our son started to get better. For the past six years, he hasn't even been hospitalized one time because he's been able to have that support that he needs for his level of disability. And so it's during all that that God just percolated in my husband and I a passion for this population that's really unseen and really vulnerable. We'll ask at this point the signature question, what does healing mean to you? Okay, that's a great question. I just want to give it in two quick parts. Uh, First of all, healing to me is, I think our greatest need is to be reconciled to God. And so Mm -hmm. that is at the forefront of my heart and my mind all the time. And now the second part, God cares about what's happening right now. God cares about my son and other people like him. His, his heart is for the marginalized. His eye, it, it's clear throughout Scripture. Yes. And so healing to me is, when I, mean, I think about my son, and, and I know God can heal him, and I, I pray, you know, God, I, I'd love for God to just miraculously heal him, but that's not happening. And right. so what is the best possible quality of life my son could have? And what is the best possible quality quality of life these other individuals that we see on our streets, that we see, that we know are in our prisons and in solitary confinement? Is that really the best we can do? And I don't believe it is. I don't even believe we are up to baseline of where these individuals should be. Mm-hmm. We're below baseline. Mm-hmm. And that is a tragedy. And so to me, healing is how can we serve this population and help them to get to that point where they have a life with dignity? And that's what I'm hoping for my son. Uh, My husband and I are never satisfied. (laughs) How is your son in terms of satisfied? I like that question. He's wanted to work ever since he was in a group home. He wanted to work, but he wasn't ready. He didn't understand where he was physiologically, his capacity. But we always worked towards that. About a year ago, got a job at a wood fire pizza place. He gets up, he goes. Wonderful. He works there three days a week. And he cuts the dough, measures it, gets it ready for them to roll it out and does some other stuff. And Good for him. he loves it. But he keeps talking about, he keeps dreaming. He keeps saying, you know, Mom, I'd love to have my own home one day. I would love to have family over and barbecue. Uh, You know, I would like to work more hours. He's not totally ready for that yet. Sure. He still dreams, and he still... Yeah. And we want to foster that as best we can, wisely. Mm -hmm. Would you be okay if I said a prayer for Seth right now? Oh, I would love it. 
Lord God, we are grateful for ways that you move in our lives. I thank you for Seth's parents, Deborah and her husband, and how they have attempted to give him a quality of life that um, moves beyond this illness he, he grapples with. I pray, Lord, and we pray together right now that he might realize his dreams and hopes, that he might work more hours, that he might find a home that could be his and have family over and uh, be fully satisfied, fully content in his uh, calling with you, um, even in, in spite of this illness. Um, to know that your grace is sufficient in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Amen. 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 So the mission of uh, P82 Homes, I, I think we, we took that conversation and went more into advocacy. Right. Let, let's dig into to the mission of, of P82 Homes and really flesh out what that particular home would look like. That's our main thing is a home. And like we got sidetracked in this conversation, I wouldn't say we were sidetracked, but we had a lot of success in advocacy because I knew a home would just care for four or five people if God gives mm -hmm. us just one home. So we really wanted to foster stronger advocacy for this group. We've had a lot of success in that. God has been so good to us. I've done a lot of community partnership building, you know, working in the community, um, no, getting to know other people, being known, and we've had a lot of success in the city of Gilbert. I was part of the mayor's task force on reaching out to the faith community with crisis care, and we developed kind of a crisis care manual. My motivation was, I just want to get to know people and serve, and, you know, mm -hmm. we want to open this home and tell everybody about the home. But I got a heart for this. I thought, wow, you know, if the faith community could learn a better way, a more compassionate and confident way to come around families that have significant crisis, like our family was walking through, people with schizophrenia and people with bipolar. Something else we do with PD2 is we, families will call us and we hold their hands through navigating the system. But there wasn't a connection to community, to a local church. And so we, where our second part of the developing our crisis care is developing a caregiver support curriculum. That's something that we want to do. Uh, we're going to kind of pilot it in our church. We just really want to care and, and kind of duplicate what we've been doing through advocacy, through crisis care with families, and train other churches to be able to do that in our community. You know, we've met so many different families with struggles like ours and just finding like-minded people who are interested also in working with us on this project, working with us on opening a home. Yeah, you've been captivated, and what I really liked what you said was uh, giving Christians more confidence in knowing how to really wrap their arms and care around people with serious mental illness. Yeah. It's not a matter of, uh, you know, Christians not wanting to. It's just not being confident and knowing what steps to take. And it sounds like you're really wanting to develop education and caregiving that that helps give people more confidence. Am, am I hearing you? Absolutely. Correctly? Yes, absolutely. Because the church can do this. They real they they did it for our family. We had no roadmap, uh, and, and 
churches don't need to be psychiatrists, but they can love people. They can they can pray with people. They can take someone out for coffee and just for 20 minutes and say, how are you doing? They can, we can do that. And I think the church wants to do that. I really mm-hmm. do. When I talk to other people from different churches, I get a different response. But the first response usually is fear. Oh, well, what about liability? I don't know what to do with somebody who's talking to themselves. And I want to help churches have more of a confidence, like just like you said, um, because it is very doable. And we should be doing it. One last thing I'll say is that what I'm hearing you say is that what appeals to me so much about your ministry is you don't start off by saying, here's how you do this. You start off by saying, here's what God did in my life. And, you know, that's the strength of the testimony that we have to share. And that's what's going to change people's lives. Thank you, Tony. Well, Deborah, I, I really like your response. Uh, what, what does healing mean to you? Yeah. You know, you, you really spoke to restoring the dignity of all, especially being attuned to the marginalized and lifting them to a place where they can dare to dream and, you know, being excited uh, that your son is in a place where he's really starting to be able to do that. I'm very happy for you and your family that uh, you've gotten to this place. Thank you. And you just described our name, P82 Project Restoration. And the project is not about people with serious mental illness. They're not a project. The project is us. We are restoring our obligation to help the weak and to help the vulnerable. And it's about us moving towards them in love. This has been a great interview. Oh, it's been great. Okay, well, I hope I didn't babble too much. (laughs) No, Really, you're very focused. A lot of good at it. And and I I can certainly feel the spirit and that spirit of advocacy working through you uh, in just the way you talk and present your story. It's, It's a beautiful thing. Thank you. You as well. Thank you for what you're doing. Denise Giesling, what a wonderful interview. Thank you, Denise, for coming on the program. One thing I took away from this is parents of persons with mental, especially severe mental illness, serious mental illness, have some unique challenges that perhaps parents of those with other illnesses do not have. In the case of mental illness, the medical providers are extremely cautious about information they share with loved ones of a person with mental illness. Therefore, a a parent or loved one finds it very difficult to get the information they need, especially when their uh, loved one is having episodes, unable to... I I can't imagine being a primary caregiver to someone on a day-to-day basis, but being Mm. refused basic information that would help in that Mm -hmm. day-to-day support of the individual. It's it's frustrating. You know, I've talked with parents in, in my life and my ministry that they often will blame the healthcare system Mm -hmm. because they are not allowed in as partners. It goes back in my own history to the time when, I mean, I go way back 1995 and 
my wife, it was assumed, was more of, of the problem, part of the problem than than the solution. So, I mean, literally, she didn't know anything about me after my first admission for the first five days. Sure. She didn't know, uh, you know, at anything at all. I think there is value in looking deeper into HIPAA. Yeah, um, she's advocating for a little more nuance, probably than currently exists. Mm-hmm. So those caregivers who yep. are a very healthy part of the person's life can have the information they need to make mm-hmm. the best decisions. One final thing, I would encourage those of us with mental illness to sit down when we are in a, a more balanced state mm-hmm. and craft with our loved one that we trust a, a very particular guardianship document. And it wouldn't have to be uh, full guardianship, but it could be in the event of you know this episode of illness, when it, when yeah. it looks like this, then my decisions will be secondary to my it sounds like lawyer lawyer work would be necessary it would need to be yeah it would need to have uh legal advice but Mm -hmm. i've done that in in a less uh strict way with my sister but it's it's understood i'm sure there's some templates out there and i would think that a lot of clinical people psychiatrists are probably very familiar with that and can probably offer some good direction in how to craft those sorts of documents. It's a good idea. How about you, Eric? What did you take away? I thought it was a great interview, Deborah. I really liked how you spoke about your relationship with your church, how you all endured through what was a, a rocky transition, you know, once it became more public knowledge that uh, your son was struggling. And you know, ultimately, the church is now a safe place for Seth, a place that he loves going to on the best day of the week. And um, his relationships, I'm sure he's made an impact on the lives of many uh, people in that congregation. I get the sense that uh, Deborah and her family has been really inspired by what their church has been able to do and would like to see more churches feel like they have the knowledge uh, to be able to do the same, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we acknowledged in the interview that part of the problem is that Christians just, in a lot of ways, want to help, want to serve, but it seems complicated and uh, not sure where to start. Yeah, I'm convinced in my my own life, in my ministry, that uh, it's not that people are just callous and right. bigoted and biased against persons with mental illness, but they just don't know what to do. And there's not enough openness and conversation either uh, at the initiative of those of us with mental illness or their loved ones out of concern for stigma. Mm -hmm. There's just not enough conversation to to come out and say, well, you know, this is what I need or, you know, this is how you can help. Yeah. And just for our listeners on the show, it starts with a conversation. We can offer up prayer in our own way, but if that sort of prayerful initiative doesn't lead to an actual connection with the people suffering, it's not going to lead to a lot of change. It's not going to lead to a more integrated body of Christ. 
that's just the bottom line. We are the hands and the feet uh, and the ears of God, and we need to make ourselves available for the conversations that will lead to better ministries. So we have received a good many ratings in our, 25 on our program 25 and they all were five-star reviews so we every are single one of them averaging 5.0 we're batting a thousand yeah um, and of those 25 12 people left comments which means a lot it means a lot to us means a lot to the algorithms but it, it means a lot eric would you share the most recent review yeah so this was from June 27th. Um, username of this person is May Silve, title Authentic, five stars. Uh, I appreciate Eric and Tony's air of authenticity and genuine passion for mental health awareness. They integrate faith in a natural way that emphasizes the holistic journey, which I appreciate because I largely attribute my own faith in Christ to my healing journey. That being said, they do a great job of making the material inclusive to those who do not hold the Christian faith. Well done. Wonderful, May. I, I appreciate that feedback. Um, we certainly aim to reach out to persons who have mental illness or have been impacted by it uh, and mental health diagnoses, regardless of their faith perspectives or mm -hmm. backgrounds. Uh, we are distinctly Christian in our own uh, faith, but uh, we also want to practice Christ-like hospitality. So Eric, uh, tell our listeners what they can do to review and rate our program. Right, so I'm, I'm an Apple user, and so if, if you do use Apple, uh, you can go to the podcast app, it's a purple icon, go in there, um, type in the search bar revealing voices right and that will pull up the icon for our show once you're in there scroll all the way down to the bottom it's going to show you know episodes you know at this point 27 all the way down to episode one there you're at the bottom and there's a spot there that has five stars that are blank all you have to do is touch your screen on the far right side so all five stars become purple and that's how you give us a five star review uh, and then uh, right below that, it says write a review. All you need to do is click on there. It'll bring up a text box where you write in a title, write in brief comments, and um, submit. Wonderful. And if you want to respond directly to us, you can write to us on the contact button from our website, revealingvoices.com. That's right. Very good. Uh, great episode. Deborah, keep Thank up the you, good Deborah. work. Keep up the good ministry. Revealing Voices is not a substitute for professional mental health care or participation in a faith community. If your unanswered questions or unanswered prayers leave you feeling desperate or unsafe, we urge you to seek further help. A partial list of outreach resources may be found on our website, revealingvoices.com. nice thing about having my editor involved i just go by the spirit he puts it in order you know i'm i'm the I put left the spirit brain. in order i'm the left brain he's the right brain yeah